If you write articles or copy, or even work as an editor for a magazine, you're going to want to listen to this advert. Are you looking to save time writing online content? Well, Phosphor AI is an online service that will save you hours of work with your content creation. All you have to do is type in your title, and their AI software will get to work writing a high-quality original article just for you. You'll need to review the article and take 15 to 20 minutes to make necessary edits, but then the piece will be ready for publishing. Just for signing up, you'll get three free articles so you can try out Phosphor AI and see what it can do all for yourself. Why waste time writing online content yourself when you can get Phosphor AI to do it for you? Try out their service today and see just how much time you can save. That's Phosphor AI. Go to phosphorai.com. This. Uh, so hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Chatter. Today I'm here with uh, Ralph Schollhammer, who is a professor of eco uh, economics and political science at Webster Vienna, uh, journalist and podcaster. Uh, Ralph, welcome to the show. Josh, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited about this. No problem. I was just thinking, I, I was going to tell you you're the first Austrian that I've had on the show, but I can't actually give you that title. Uh, it was a friend of mine uh, who is a cook who uh, came on to talk about yeah food and cooking. So unfortunately, you don't have that title. But so first, how mean? How mean to dangle this in front of my face just to take it away? First uh, Viennese guest I've ever had. Oh, there we go. <laughs> oh, I must visit your your uh, your city someday. I've heard so much about it. Um, never never made it out, out that direction. Stayed around Innsbruck mostly. Mm. Anyway, so you have been writing a lot about um, some very controversial things. Um, clearly, a man with no fear. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> now so, that's an introduction. I should put that on my business card. Yeah, a man with no fear. I'm sure you'd get. Uh, yeah, you'd definitely get a couple of calls with that. Uh, <laughs> for what? I'm not sure. But uh, <laughs> so. Yeah, the first thing I want to talk about is you, you basically have, have uh, laid out this idea that Europe has been the cause of their own energy crisis, that they are very much have themselves to blame. So why do you think this is and why is it not big, bad Russia um, that's made all our problems? Well, there is a kind of, you know, it, 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 there is a, a very famous commentator on all things related to energy and, and commodities uh, they run an interesting Substack, and uh, also, by the way, a fantastic Twitter account. And they call themselves Doomberg. Uh, it's it's a it's a play on Bloomberg, uh, but they they call themselves Doomberg. And they kind of came up deliberately in, in a joking way with a fake uh, Shun Tzu quote, there, and which they, which goes like this: They say, if you hand all your leverage to the enemy, then don't be surprised uh, if he uses it. And this is a little bit the situation with Russia. So if one says, okay, what happened in 2022? Sure, we could take the position that the energy crisis is primarily caused by Russia's war against Ukraine. But if we look at the run-up to all of this, we gave all that leverage to Russia, particularly in the energy sector. And this is particularly true for Germany. The French are a little bit of a separate topic, but I'm sure we're going to talk about this as well. It is important to mention Different European countries have different energy mixes and have different dependencies uh, on Russia and, and the kind of fossil fuels they use. But there is one overarching theme that has been true for all over Europe and particularly uh, the, the Western European states, but uh, the European Union member states, but also Great Britain. And that is this idea that you can have energy 
but without any downsides, which meant like no drilling, no exploration within European territory. And what you need in the realms of energy, you can get by renewables. And when we say renewables, we primarily, of course, mean wind and solar. I mean, there is in areas where it's possible, there's, of course, also hydropower, uh, but that's limited to, you know, the Swedes are very good at this. Austria is very strong at it. But this depends on the topographic situation. So not everybody can do hydropower. The Dutch cannot do hydropower, even if they would want to, because they simply don't have the geography for it. And, and, and it's self-inflicted also. There would be many natural resources in Europe. This is very often underestimated. There is a lot under the ground that could be explored. And by the way, we're not just talking about gas here, which would be a lot in Poland and Germany. There would even be lithium. Uh, there would be, there's still remaining um, potential for coal mining. There is a lot still there, but the decision is for primarily environmental reasons, which again, one can discuss in greater detail. The decision was made not to tap into this. Now, we can absolutely defend those decisions. That's fine by me. But I think you always have to be honest what the consequences are, which is if you do not access your own energy resources and you decide to import them, there are two consequences. One is it's going to be more expensive. And the second one is if the party from which you import, for whatever reason, turns sour on you or, or you on them, well, then they're probably going to use that leverage. And this is precisely what we have observed since uh, February uh, 2022. So none of this is a great surprise. And, and if you look at the numbers, I mean, it was clear that if relations with Russia, or now one could also argue if relations with the United States, because now we shifted to an LNG dependency on the United States, or all these new long-term contracts uh, with Qatar and other uh, Gulf states for LNG in the future, if relations turn sour with them, we're going to be in exactly the same situation. So it doesn't strike me as if we have really learned from this situation. But the, one of the things that, that really confuses me about the, the entire discussion about about energy, about um, fossil fuels, about renewable uh, sources of energy is is that we, we seem to be trying to make this leap in some senses to like fully renewable sources of energy before we're actually capable of doing that. In uh, and 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 it's like we don't even want to accept like because I don't know if we got enough lithium and you know dealt with the the, the problems with the grid and you know f managed to deal with like storing all the energy so that you know renewables were the the viable source for most of our fuel. It's like we still need some other fuel in the interim till we get to that period, right? Why? Why? Because it seems to it's like because it's not just like so. So Europe have kind of as you've laid out caused some of their own problems. Like I mean, Germany turned off um, or decommissioned all of their their nuclear plants. Uh, America has been uh, shutting down some of the new um, oil pipelines um, coming down from Canada, and and it, it seems like we're we're trying to pretend like we're there. And like totally ready for 100% renewables, like technologically and like in terms of infrastructure. And and we, we're taking away these old sources of energy with no like plan to replace them. And it just seems like like energy suicide. Like what on yeah. earth is going on? Well, I think there's, there's kind of three answers, I believe, to this question. One is, I think we often have forgotten how much modern life depends on energy. I think this this is something that simply eludes us. And I'm not just talking about electricity kind of as the most 
prominent form of energy in our daily lives, right? We're just used to the fact, you know, we we plug in our computer, we plug in our cell phone. Uh, who knows very soon all of us have to plug in their electric vehicles. We're just used then to the idea that electricity is going to come out of it. But we underestimate there's a lot more going on. Just to give an example, uh, the, the the modern city, if you want, right, is is built on steel, it's built on concrete, right? And all of this needs vast amounts of energy to be produced. Like the, the process to turn lime into 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 cement, into concrete, right? It's a very energy intensive process. Uh, the same, of course, is true with steel, right? Uh, and, and other materials and other metals, right? You cannot process them with, uh, with low level heat. You need massive amounts of industrial heat. And all of this can at the moment only be or most effectively be provided by fossil fuels. Yes, there are ideas that we can use hydrogen and there are potential alternatives, but that's all still in the development phase. And there are already people who say that maybe, again, I'm not saying I'm one of them, I'm just laying out what, what the argument is, that hydrogen is not going to be as easy as many think. It's less energy dense than natural gas. It needs to be kept at much colder temperatures, Will we lead, which could potentially lead to more erosion in pipelines because currently the plan is we just use the natural gas pipelines then for hydrogen. So there is a lot now can the, that even the alternatives that we're thinking about potentially are not going to be the right ones uh, or, or as feasible as you might think. And the reason why I'm saying is this is because there is this idea, you know what, you take a couple of uh, fewer hot showers and let's say you only charge your phone at night and then we kind of like with a snap of, of our fingers, can move everything to wind, can every, move everything to solar or to, to burning biomass or anything. But it's not going to work like this because the major process is necessary to sustain civilization, need energy. I mean, and we haven't even talked about another field that I would like to mention, which is plastics, mm. uh, right? You need you need both for the, the, the chemical processes to create it and also for the, the compounds that make it, you need fossil fuels to create plastic. And right you you probably see it in the background i'm a very nostalgic person so but we don't just use plastic for masters of the universe action figures right go to a modern hospital you know everything there is is for good reason is made of plastic because it's a very convenient form to you know uh, to store blood to you know uh, for um, injections and all these kind of things it's 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 you know uh, all these these you know it, it's bendable right so you can create the artificial breathing machinery and all of this so lots of things that make civilized life possible depends on energy. And I think we have forgotten this. We tell the story. I know, I'm sorry, I'll probably apologize. It's going to be a little bit of a longer answer. That's right. But I think we we tell the story about energy wrong. We tell it as if it's just one part of, of modern life, right? It's, you know, it's, it's, it's one topic. Can we compartmentalize it? But in fact, it's the one thing that underlies everything else. It's as somebody once um, remarked, it's kind of the only true universal currency is energy. If you have more of it, you're going to get richer. If you have less or too little of it, you're going to get poorer. Take one quick example. A country like Qatar, and I think they have shown this during the, the, the football world, right, is pushing significantly above its weight. Uh, why can they do this? Because they are a net primary energy exporter. So, right, the Germans can all huff and puff about, oh, you will not silence us. And our footballers, you know, they will wear an, an armband with a, the rainbow flag and all of this. Mm. And Qatar pretty much said, listen, you come to us asking us for LNG contracts. And then you think you can, you know, hum try to humiliate us on the global stage. It's not going to happen. It's not going to work. And this is pretty much exactly 
uh, what happened because you cannot run a modern economy without access to energy and uh, we tend to forget this and it's it's particularly ironic i was thinking about this just as a quick add-on i don't know where you live uh, but kind of, as you said right I, I live in vienna especially urbanites like like ourselves i assume you're also in a in, a, in, a, in an urban setting at the moment yeah i'm in london it's, Oh well, they're, 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 like we are the person. So, so we talk here between Vienna and London. Uh, if energy becomes scarce, including electricity, we are the ones who are going to be screwed, right? We are the, we are the ones who, who who live in the you know the, the the surrounded by steel and concrete with not a any kind of of pasture around us. The people in the countryside are probably going to be just fine, right? They they have much closer access to alternative forms of energy, whether it be wood or whether it be you know. Uh, you know, when you can plant at least something in, in your garden. So for them, I think the, the survival with, let's say, less energy is is more likely or manage, more manageable than for us in the cities. Imagine, you know, you live in an apartment on the 25th floor and they say, it's too bad, elevators are only going to work two days a week. Uh, <laughs> that's like, this is a huge inconvenience. Well, who of us, maybe you do it. I'm planning on starting to do it. I don't do it yet. Um how much food do you have in your refrigerator? Like, if there would be a blackout right now, how long could you could you so how, for how long would you have food available? Maybe a week. Oh, then oh yeah, you beat me, right? I, mean, I have a few pounds of tuna. <laughs> like, I probably I could make it a couple of days, but but I, I'm not anyway. Fit. I'm just used to the fact. Like, I plan after this conversation to go to the store and you know buy something to make for dinner. Now imagine a situation again where supermarkets are closed for you know two days, three days because they simply there is a, there is no electricity. Uh, I no food. Think, yeah, I think we completely underestimate the potential uh, repercussions. And this brings me to my other point that that especially the the proponents I think of renewables either by accident or deliberately obfuscate or are not willing to uh, to, to accept. We had in Great Britain and Germany, if you look at the numbers over the last couple of days, we had periods where renewables contributed about 3%, 4% to overall electricity needs. Now, one can say, well, what's the big deal, right? It happens once or twice a year. So, so why should we care? Because electricity especially is something you need 24-7. It's not a commodity. It's a service, right? It's like your doctor telling you, saying, listen, Josh, yeah, very healthy, but there might be one day a year where you can't breathe, but you're going to be fine for the rest of the year. So 364 days, you know, your heart, your lungs are going to be fine, but there's one day where both of them are not going to work. Well, you'll be dead, right? Uh, so so it, it might be an outlier. You, you could say on average, uh, <laughs> it's fine, but, but in fact, you know, it's, it, it's a lethal thing. And I believe this is how we also have to look at energy. This is not something where I say we had a lot of electricity in August, so it's okay if we don't have it in December. This is not like, like none of this works like this. I mean, can you imagine how much food we would have to throw away if a refrigeration chains uh, at, at food distributors are, are are broken for a couple of hours? I mean, just again from an environmental and moral perspective, how how much we would have to you know just throw away because it, it would, would go bad. And I think this is where we um, where we are not honest in the in the debate about energy. And the last point on this, which I think I think is also very important, I am no, I'm not opposed to nuclear. I'm not opposed to wind, but I think we have to face them for what they are, which is they have the so-called capacity factors are very low. But capacity factor, we mean you can build, you know, 
35 gigawatts of solar capacity. And, and what this means is that on a perfect day, under perfect conditions, it could produce uh, that kind of that, that vast amount of energy, uh, of electricity in this case. But those conditions are barely ever existent. So on average, the capacity for solar in Great Britain is a little higher, right? I think it's about 15%. Uh, in the US, it's around 25% because they have California, Arizona, New Mexico. In Germany, it's 11%. Whoa. So, so why, you, is it, you, why is it so low in Germany? Do you just have because, a, you have more cloud no, because, cover? Because, well, Mu let's put it this way: Munich and uh, and Berlin, for example, have fewer sunny days than Seattle. The Germany is, and don't get me wrong, I I like the Germans, but I mean, when you really? think about when you <laughs> when you think about sun and blue skies, is your first thought Germany? No, but no, it's, it's not. It's, no, no, it's not right. You, you think about you know the. The, the, the coast areas, it's the, like in Sicily, it would make a lot of sense, right? If you say you build solar farms in Sicily, in North Africa, absolutely. But to do it in Bavaria or, or, or in the Alps, is, is, it's, it makes no sense. You, of course you can do it. And of course people are saying, well, but look how much we built. Of course it's going to produce some electricity, but is it the best possible you know, way to do it? It's, it's like saying, um, if you have to commute 100 kilometers every day, you could do it hypothetically by bike, but is it the most efficient way to do it? So and I think this is, again, we, we should not just be looking for what is possible. We should look at is the possible way, the best possible way. And this brings me to what you said, uh, and this is what, what irks me so much. If we look at the numbers, I mean, we do have a revolutionary source for energy with a capacity factor of 90%, meaning it actually provides the, the energy that it can on its best days, it really does do it for most of the time. And that is nuclear. Uh, as I said, people say, oh, you are a proponent of nuclear. Well, I'm not a proponent of nuclear. Uh, I'm just saying of all the available possibilities with the exception of hydropower, but that as we discussed early on, right, simply depends so much on geography. It is a very, very good option because it does not just produce electricity, it produces heat. So there's a lot you can do with it. This is, I do admit, and full disclosure here, the more I have I have engaged with the matter of nuclear energy, I admit, I mean, the more of a fan I, I become because there is still so much uh, so much potential, but but we we don't see it because there is this almost uh, and I don't begrudge anybody who holds that view, but I think we have to call it what it is. There is a such a strong ideological component that has become connected to the matter of renewables. Right? It's it's so it's it's not no no longer that that you know we say okay this was this seemed like a good idea. We tried it. It's not perfect, but some things you just find out when you try it. So maybe we should make adjustments. It's more like we have to double down on this. And and the the, the less it works, the more we have to double down on it. it it's a form of uh, I described it recently. It's a form of cognitive dissonance, right? You it's, you know you throw virgins into volcanoes because you hope you're gonna get a great harvest, and and the harvest just doesn't come. So you don't say, hmm, should we try something else? You say, no, we have to throw, you know, twice as many virgins in the volcano. Then it's going to work. And this is a little bit as it, as it seems at the moment, because the fact is, if there is no sun, if there is no wind blowing, it does not matter how many wind turbines or solar panels you put up, they're not going to produce any energy, any electricity. I mean, I had conversations where I was... I'm not joking here. Right? Well, I was basically treated like a conspiracy nut for pointing <laughs> out 
for pointing out that the sun doesn't <laughs> shine at night. So, so, so this is now controversial. Right? So, so we are in a, in a societal stage. Right? Like, so, so I thought that the whole debate whether, you know, what, what a woman is and, and whether there is biological sex, I thought that that's going to be the high point of, of, you know, contentious debate. So no, we have not reached a stage where pointing out there is no sun at night that they say, well, that's just a right-wing talking point. And, and it's, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a very hard to, to, I mean, what do you say then? Well, I, I heard somebody else said, "Yeah, nuclear sounds interesting, but but you do know that the nuclear that's uh, that's uh, what is it? That's the energy of choice for the for the right wingers." So so I mean, what, what are you going to say? I mean, well, apparently the right wingers then are smarter when it comes to energy than the left wingers. I don't know, but but it gives you it shows you the ideological content, mm -hmm. and I think there is uh, as to just as if you allow me this one more point. Mm -hmm. There is a cultural factor underlying this that, that, that I, I understand it in the Austrian and German case, not so much I have to admit in other countries, but I think there is this idea, uh, particularly in, in Germany, that a country that, that for, for various reasons you know, has unfortunately in the last hundred years more often than not stood on the wrong side of history, to put it this way, that, that for them this is seen as a chance to redeem themselves. Right, so so two world wars that didn't work out as expected, uh, but now this is the chance after twice being not unjustifiably accused of causing a firestorm that wrecked large parts of the world. Now we found the key to redeem the world, uh, and and you see it in the language, right? It, it kind of the, the, the way also politicians speak about this. Uh, uh, I think there is there is a lot to this, and 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 we should not forget this. So that gives that gives I think a very important dimension to this because. If again, for me, it's about I want cheap energy because I think it's it's good for prosperity. Uh, it makes things cheaper. It helps out the lower classes. It helps out people in economic distress. And if the, if this energy comes from hydro, if it comes from wind, if it comes from nuclear, I don't care as long as it's there. But once you you tie your soul to specific energy forms, right? Once your identity is almost you know determined by your allegiance to wind, to solar, to and, and a few others, to hydrogen, then it's more difficult because then it's no longer a means to an end. They become an end in themselves. And this is, I think, in men, not everyone, not everywhere. But I think this is a, a kind of a, a ideological phenomenon that has captured many in the media, many in politics, and many in the realm of culture. So it's no longer about, about because that's all my questions when I when I talk with him. So, okay, what is the goal? Right? And they say sustainability. Okay, sustainability of what? They say, well, of the planet. Okay, so so is the planet really gonna die? I don't, I mean, if, if you look at the history of the of the earth, I mean, it has been through a lot, right? I mean, it, you know, from from the volcanoes, asteroids. So it it's and to be honest, I I I'm I I love nature, but but I don't think that Earth has a, a consciousness in, in in a way that they present it, which again shows me that it is a religious ideological component. Right? You hear it when they say, well, you know, with global warming and and the supposedly in many ways, I have to admit the data is, is more is more ambiguous there uh, than many would like admit, right? You know, there's more flooding and, and more more storms and everything. And this, this is kind of nature showing us it's upset or something. Is it that is it? Again, this this sounds to me this 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 is almost indistinguishable. That's a hard word. You cannot distinguish it from 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 you know uh, some 
16th century uh, cleric saying that plague is God's answer for your sinful behavior. I see many parallels there, and and that's what I'm what I'm worried about. And and you see it also uh, with I don't well beating a dead horse, but I am worried when I hear that people like Greta Thunberg all of a sudden say, well, environment climate was just a big and there's a horrible word, it's not mine. Environment and climate was just the beginning. Now it's about ending the Western capitalist system. Because that tells me what the, what the motivation is, which is exactly this idea that the world suffers because of Western capitalism. And now climate change policies will be a way to can atone for the horrors that the West has brought upon the world. And that may not or may not be true. But that's a different kind of motivation, right? As I said before, I want energy because I think energy is important. The, these other people want kind of to revolutionize energy production because they see it as a way to atone for their historical sins. And I think we have to name those motivations because I think they explain a lot uh, of the, the the you know mistaken directions we go we, we go into. And the third part, and that's really the last one, of course. And then you have politicians who are opportunists. Uh, I mean, if you take the German situation. I mean, spending 500 billion euros for an energy transition that the only thing they really transitioned to was to, Rus to Russian gas. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, to give, all these, to give all these Sunday speeches, how great we are in wind, how great we are in solar, how great we are in renewables. But in fact, if you look at the numbers, all you see is that every year they imported more and more and more and more gas from Russia. I mean, but that's, again, that's politics, right? They, they, they try to have their cake and eat it too, because they know if you triple energy bills, people will, will revolt. Uh, but they also like to hear about how fantastic uh, they're doing in the energy transition. So why not give them both, right? So with one hand, you say everything is great. And the other hand is, you know, pushing the money to the Russians and, and, and getting their gas. I think that's the cynical but, but sad reality. Yeah, unfortunately. So why why is the conversation never about efficiency of of our products and our our like you know electronics because like it seems it seems to me like say we made everything 50% more efficient then we would drop our carbon footprint by 50% right that's how how it would work but the, the 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 conversation is is very rarely about that. It seems to be almost exclusively about. Okay, so we need to stop using fossil fuels immediately because they're the all the worst thing in the world. Like, why do you think that that? It's like, what if we just used the energy better? You know, why is that never like a a talking point? Do you think? No, I think I think you you could not be more on the money. I think you're right, but I would only add, but that, that, that this is happening. Uh, if you look, for example, in in European nations and the United States, in Great Britain and Australia, if you look at the development of GDP and fossil fuel use, right, uh, and and uh, CO two emissions, they have been decoupled. So the economy is growing at a higher rate than uh, than CO two emissions and the use of fossil fuels. So we are moving in the right direction. That that's kind of the, the thing that always drives me crazy. We are moving in the right direction. It's just, as you just correctly pointed out, it's just that it has to happen tomorrow. It has to happen today. Okay, that's not going to work. But that we are on a good path. And and I think it's it's so mind-boggling that, that nobody is willing to say this is going to be a gradual process. 
and we'll get better step by step. And we're going to end up, I'm sure, you know, in 20, 30, 40, 50 years, again, with, with much more efficient, uh, less energy abusing economies than we are today. But we're not going to end up at fossil free economies. Right. This, 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 this is, this is, it's, it's, it's this extreme black and white. It's all or nothing. It's going to be gradual, right? You move from coal to gas and then you move from gas, you know, where can you kind of, you know, replace it with, with nuclear? Where does it make sense to replace it with, with hydrogen? Where, of course, absolutely. Uh, if you have regular and reliable wind that you, that it can add to the baseload, of course, there is a room for, for wind turbines. Of course, we're also going to use solar panels. So I think this this is all possible, but this is not how the debate is 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 conducted. It's all about if it's not going to happen tomorrow, we are out of time. No, right? I think so. We are not out of time. The world is not going to end in five years, right? This is if we don't do it now, then we're going to reach this inflection points, and then there is no way. To to be honest, to be quite honest, if if that's the case, uh, then we're screwed anyways. Yeah, because um, they because they have already said that one point five degrees is 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 set in by the end of the century. Like they've said that we that's saw happening, it. right? Correct. I mean, we we saw it. I mean, we ran this almost you know, quote unquote, perfect experiment. We shut down the global economy to different degrees at different parts of the world, but we pretty much shut down the global economy for a significant amount of time during COVID, and it was barely a dent in fossil fuel use. So you you would have to go, you know. COVID lockdown measurements on steroids uh, to, to really reach the, the kind of, uh, of, of decline in fossil fuel use that the most extreme movements want. And the okay, thing let's is, like, not give them any ideas, man. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> but and the, but the thing that the thing that the people say, well, I mean, so, so why would that be so bad? Would, well, because modern life would cease to exist. This, it would simply cease to exist. And, and that's, I think the, the, the truly, uh, astounding thing in these in these debates and they also in many ways of course make things worse i'm not convinced that over their entire lifetime from production to you know decommission uh electric cars at their as they are currently at the current state of the art if they truly are less of a burden for the climate for the environment then let's say you know the, the regular uh, efficient car or, or, or a well-built hybrid car. I'm not convinced. Mm. Uh, everybody knows who's honest about this, that the elect electric grids in Europe, in the United States, in Australia, in all other parts of the world who want to switch to electric cars by the end of 2030 are not prepared for this. Right? They are not, the, the, the grids are not going to survive such a switch. So then the question is, so what's the idea? And they're the ideas. And this, I think, is also important. It is, well, not everybody needs a car. And the problem, and, and I, to be full disclosure, I don't own a car, so 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 Me it's neither. possible. Yeah, so it's possible. But the thing is, most people think you know, Jim is not gonna have a car. I'm still gonna have mine. But then it will turn out, nope, Jim is not gonna have his, and you won't either. And I think people are not gonna get along with it. And this is again, as much as I'm happy to share the overall goals of you know more, as you mentioned, more efficiency, less fossil fuel use. If the means that are suggested to reach that goal come at, at such distortions in uh, distribution of, of wealth, in, in distribution of access to the, the, the comforts we could use in our daily lives, you simply are going to lose public support for this. 
because that was the story, at least in the past. The story was we can make this transition and maybe your electricity bill is going to be slightly more expensive, but it's all going to be, you know, within the realm of, of that's tolerable. And now more and more with the, it's it's kind of moving gradually outside of the realm of the tolerable. And we we already have these debates. You hear this, you know, in, in the New York Times and other outlets and say, well, you know, maybe democracy is not the right system in such a crisis. So maybe people are just not smart enough. So the, and this is these are very worrisome trends. There is kind of under the the, the guise, and I do not deny that the, the pure intentions of those behind it. But there is a, an authoritarian, totalitarian political program underpinning the, the 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 rapid push to renewables that I think will not stop at the realm of energy, because then they're going to look at okay, if we cannot make the necessary energy, we have to reduce uses, right? And then you 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 end up at the you know first it might be only you know run the the washer and dryer at night, and then it's a you know, we should eat less meat and uh, we should eat less in general. And, and, and you know, and then all these comforts of, of daily uh, of daily life, of regular life will disappear. And as always, someone could say, well, we are an oversaturated, over-consuming society anyways. Maybe, but I'll be honest, I, I like it that way. Uh, I, I think one of the greatest things is uh, the, the consumer society. It's, I, I, I like the, I want to go into the store and and you know in December and buy bananas and, and buy strawberries in in March and, and get a pineapple uh, for you know two euro ten. I think these are these are great things because and why are they great? They're great because even members of lower classes of working classes, right, of of, of less economic power, have access to things that have been luxury goods a hundred years ago. Uh, and I want to keep that. I want people to still be able to have these few joys in life. Uh, and not make it as it was 200 years ago that the super rich will always have their bananas and their pineapples. Mm. Uh, and, and, and that's so, so there's always, there's, there's always also a kind of class warfare element in the, in the, the, the energy transition debate. And, and I think we, we have to point this out again, not because one is against the transition, but saying we need to think through what the consequences of, as you correctly mentioned it, what the consequences of a, of an ideologically, and not scientifically driven approach to this is, and I think we are we are mm. very delusional about thinking what's going to come. I mean, twenty twenty three is going to be a test because most people will only feel the energy crunch and see it in their bills next year, mm. uh, and and we'll see how they're going to react. And I don't think it's going to be pretty. Yeah, we'll get on to how I think people are going to react in a minute, actually. But, um, and I I definitely think I think the the point you made about why some in like anti fossil fuel activists are not willing to consider nuclear um because of ideological purity and i think that speaks to a lot to what is the most important thing for some of the for the people is like okay so is is our co2 and you know greenhouse gas like emissions is that really the 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 top of the priority because if so you know, and this, and then, but then that's the other problem with like calling it a crisis and 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 stating that it's 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 something that has to be dealt with because when something is a crisis that's going to destroy the world, then any actions in order to alleviate it are justified. Um, no, that's true. That, that's but true. I but wanted, get, sorry, I just no, just 
Just one quick, one quick one, because, because you made such a perfect point. Just one quick sentence. I mean, imagine you are someone who dedicated his entire life fighting a problem, you know, and, and they said, this is the most urgent problem. The most thing. And then your neighbor comes along and says, oh, we have a solution for that problem. And that has been around since the 50s. I mean, are you going to be like, oh, well, then I guess my life's work was for nothing. Or are you going to try to find ways why that solution is actually not the solution? Mm-hmm. And I think this is a little bit the, the, you know, the extinction rebellion, last generation issue with nuclear because they are like these young energetic people who kind of know they are the only ones who see the problem and they figured out what to do and then some old kooks come along and say you know we we had this thing that we started in the 1960s called nuclear power plants and they could be pretty much a solution to all the problems that you're pointing out like i guess i wouldn't accept it either (laughs) so the the question i want to ask you was like so that I think you're right about this sort of um, anti-capitalist authoritarianism that sort of underlines at least some of the the environmental movement, um, at least the ones calling for the most extreme actions. But um, do you know what a steel man argument is? I know what a straw man argument okay, is. Okay, so steel man, steel man is is essentially the opposite, right? So, as, like, if I, I was wondering if you could make the best possible case for abandoning democracy in order to save the planet from the the scourge of the fossil fuel industry, like, do you see, like, what's the strongest argument that you personally could make for that? So you want me to make a case for the abandonment of of democracy? Yes, just just like um, like it's it's like a for me it's a, I've been listening to a lot of Lex Friedman and he does this great thing where he he asks people to like come up with the strongest argument for their opponents. I mean, you could like, to to, to uh, no, this is a good question. Well, well like, let me let me give you two examples. I think you could you you could do it if you. Actually, this is a fantastic question. I would even be willing to consider it if there is a plan that says, okay, here are the goals that we set. And once these go, whatever those goals are, and, and they must be feasible goals, right? So, so, so they, they, they must be non-ambitious. And once these goals are, are accomplished, kind of, kind of democracy is immediately reinstated. I'm, the, the best historical example I can think of is Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War in the United States, right? Like he had extraordinary powers uh, many at the time, you know, important civil rights were suspended from free speech to habeas corpus, but it was pretty clear that this is going to end once the war is over. So if the argument would be, so here is our, let's say, five-point plan. This five-point plan can be executed in four to six years. Uh, and, and once this is done, you know, we revert back to democracy, I think then I could live with it. But that that's, so, so if that would be the plan, but then right, it, it it would really have to be a, a plan designed to 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 solve the problem at hand. It cannot then become a longer ideological crusade, right? It, so, so if the plan is we want dictatorial powers until we have overcome capitalism, yeah, that's not going to work. If they say we want dictatorial powers until we have built, let's say, uh, you know, a hundred gigawatt of, of solar capacity. Okay, I mean, th- then that's a plan, right? Th- then what, this is something you can measure. You can have uh, institutions in place that monitor it. So I think that there is room, and there's always been, 
for temporal suspension, you know, martial law, you know, times of extraordinary distress. So, so I think there could be an argument uh, made for that, but I'm just, I, I don't, I, again, I would like to see the argument first. Hmm. Well, no, I mean, that, that makes sense. You want to see the plan. Like, I, yeah, I, exactly. I also want to see the plan. Yeah. Um, and sort of wrapped up in, in, in this discussion that a lot of people are having about, about energy consumption is, is farming. Uh, like it's 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 very much at the center of it just because of how energy intensive the food production process is like i mean it's the it's literally the fuel of life it it doesn't shock me that it's very energy intensive but and and holland i believe is one of the like most efficient places in the world at farming and uh, yes so so basically like i i don't understand what's happened here right in order to save the planet the place that has cracked the most efficient form of food production is going to stop producing that much food so that they damage the environment less. But I, I don't understand this case at all. I do not understand what the fuck is going on with these farmers. So could you please shed some light on this for me? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is this, no, this is one of the most interesting cases because it's also spilling over into other European, other European nations. Um, the, the Dutch have their own, their own mini. I mean, this was kind of my my segue into the entire energy question. Everything kind of with the Dutch farmers, uh, and I wrote a couple of months ago an article about it for Newsweek, uh, where I made the argument that this this is part of kind of the broader green agenda, the broader the broader climate agenda, and I was kind of. Uh, heavily criticized for, no, this is about nitrogen, right? This is about CO2. This has nothing to do with the climate. It's completely different. So three days ago, the, the Dutch minister of, of, of nitrogen, they literally have a minister that's called the minister of nitrogen, <laughs> went into public and said, no, no, this is part of our climate agenda. I mean, I was very happy because I felt vindicated, right, by the person behind all of it. But it's, it's again, something we have to see in this kind of broader ideological context and this, this broader ideological context which is that that there, there is and, and the, another thing she said was that that for the Dutch in her interpretation, it is more important to rejuvenate and kind of uh, and, and reestablish the the what was it, the, the kind of the, 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 the pristine state of nature than being one of the world's largest agricultural exporters. I mean, first of all, I think honesty is great. So she said pretty much what what she was thinking, all right? That, that this this is part of the plan, uh, that this is the intention behind it. But we always have to ask why is that the case, right? Where does this obsession come from with uh, that nature untouched by by you know human activity is the preferred state? And I think again, it falls into this larger. Uh, anti-humanistic if you want kind of ideology right where the best place in the world is the place where you can, where, where humanity hasn't left any uh, any traces by the way very, very different from how the dutch viewed all of this in the 19th uh, the 19th century mm. um but there is again in the, that there is no imminent ecological collapse in the netherlands i mean this this is one again this, this is this, it's everything nowadays in the debate about from climate to agriculture is that everything is immediate collapse. There is no immediate collapse. The Dutch farmers, once again, just as with, with CO2 emissions, have been reducing their nitrogen emissions constantly over the last years, but the government was making ever more excessive demands that they have to do it faster, 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 and faster. And they say, we can't. 
to another government that said, well, then we have to reduce the farms, right? Then we kind of have to buy out the farms. And as they said, uh, they made this one offer, you know, whether they will they will buy them for a significant amount over market value, but uh, a better offer is not going to come. And if they don't take it, right, the government will consider other other steps as well. Now, so, again, go, go on. I was just, um, I just wanted to clarify something here, but just like, because I genuinely don't know what the effect of nitrogen is in the atmosphere or like why, what would be the, the reason, is it, is it like too much nitrogen in the soil or like, what is the, what is the reason for the, the desire to reduce nitrogen? Because I understand like the, when, when people come and say, right, okay, we want to reduce, reduce, uh, reduce CO2 emissions. So you, they say, okay, it's because it's a greenhouse gas, it traps heat in the, the atmosphere and then, um, yeah uh with, with with methane the argument's basically the same except that it's worse um so what, what's the argument about nitrogen and why why are they so determined to reduce their their nitrogen emissions well some yeah. arguments are that that kind of nitrogen as it accumulates in the in the groundwater as it accumulates in the in the soil uh it has a deteriorate effect on on certain insect groups it has a, a negative effect on on biodiversity i mean it's a little bit contested so i have also seen studies that say that the way these studies have been conducted uh it's not at all clear that nitrogen is the main culprit but there is another problem that that we have to discuss in in line of this which is that nitrogen is the most important or among the most important uh three ingredients for synthetic fertilizer and uh and, and there the numbers are absolutely clear we cannot feed 4 billion people in the world without synthetic fertilizers. Uh, we could feed 4 billion. So if we would stop the entire use of, of uh, synthetic fertilizers, uh, which would rapidly decrease nitrogen, uh, then uh, 4 billion people would most likely starve. I mean, the the irony here is, is again, and, and again, we can have debates about, right, about alternatives and all these kind of things. But the irony is that that it was the the ability to synthetically create nitrogen that saved the world at the turn of the, from the 19th to the 20th century from mass starvation because populations were growing so fast that food production couldn't keep up and they could not just expand farmland. So they had to actually expand the crop yields you know, per square mile of farm. And the only way to do this was via synthetic, via synthetic, oh, such a hard word for a German speaker, <laughs> synthetic fertilizers. Uh, and and you cannot. And this is where we again have this misinformation. You cannot replace it with with you know you know manure or these kind of things uh, because the nitrogen content is simply is too too little. It's it's too it's it's too small. So we need these these uh, these modern tools of modern agriculture. Otherwise, the world is going to starve. Now, if they close down, currently it's about three thousand farms. If they close down six thousand farms in the Netherlands. The world is not going to starve. Europe is not going to starve, and the Dutch are not going to starve. But, but, and I think this is once again one of these unintended consequences that tend to be overlooked. Not only are the Dutch great innovators in the realm of agriculture, but you also discourage an entire sector in your economy. I mean, if you're a Dutch farmer, and very often these farms, I mean, to be clear, the Dutch farmers are very wealthy. Uh, so so th these are not poor people, but they are industrious people. They are innovative people. So you can be a productive member of society and be rich. I don't think that there's necessarily a, a contradiction or be, I'll be wealthy, let's put it this way. And uh, 
why would you invest, right? I think we repeat the same mistake we did with oil and gas. We start, we start to do the same in the agricultural sector. If you discourage investment in these areas, you're not going to have, you know, whatever it is they provide uh, in the years to come. I mean, this is this, we, we know, right? The numbers are clear. Nobody denies them. We have significantly underinvested, for example, in oil and gas infrastructure, in refinery capacity, in everything needed to keep kind of the fossil fuel industry going. Because the idea was in 10 years, we no longer need it. Now these 10 years have passed, we still need it, but we don't have the infrastructure. And I think agriculture will be a similar thing. Now we go to war with uh, with modern agriculture, and then in 10 years, we're going to find out that, wait a moment, the replacement is not really there. i give you one quick example on this. Germany wants to go 30% organic in its in its uh, agriculture over the next uh, 10 to 20 years. Mm -hmm. This would turn Germany from a, a net exporter of agricultural products into a net importer of agricultural products. I mean, first of all, after they had such great success with outsourcing their, their energy to Russia, now outsourcing your food production is going to be just as amazing, I'm sure. But imagine everybody follows that model. So, so from where are you going to import the food? And, and when we have a perfect example, what happens? Really a perfect one. And that was Sri Lanka. Right? Sri Lanka was praised in every news media by every NGO. They did it. They got you know, no more synthetic fertilizers, all organic, you know, and they show the world you can do it. The only thing that happened is they turned from an exporter of rice to an importer of rice. And the population starved because they imported rice and tea as well, which was one of their main export staples to make money. Uh, all of a sudden, they had to pay for things where in the past they did get paid for. And now everybody, like, and how quickly it also, that, like this disappeared from the media, right? So we heard, oh, you know, that they stormed the palace, so they had to report about this. But barely anybody was willing to drill down why this happened. They were act on. They were encouraged to put policies into place that ultimately put them on a path to economic disaster. And in many, not in all ways, but in many ways, we seem to want to replicate on a different level this same, this same, uh, these, these same policies. And mm. it's, it's hard to understand, which is why I always come back to the thing that I can, only, I can be wrong, of course, as always, but I can only explain it um, uh, as, as part of, a, of an ideological campaign. And to give you one example of this, the German Minister of Agriculture was posting a selfie recently where he said uh, he just met with uh, with NGOs and, and, and academics to discuss the future of German farming, of German agriculture. And uh, and the member of the German Association of, of Farmers wrote under the, the, the picture, he said, so he's seen all, the, he knows all the people on the picture. And he's a little surprised that the, the Minister of Agriculture has not invited a single representative of the German farming community to discuss the future of agriculture. So Greenpeace was there, right? And, and, and all the NGOs was there. They all were, but the only people not at the table were those who actually make the food. And, and, and this, this is for me, right? This is, and I talked to another friend of mine who, uh, who, who works for, the, um, for an energy company in, in Switzerland. And the Swiss tend to be very, very you know, effective in everything. And he said that the same thing. There was a meeting about uh, creating the, the, the Swiss plan for the energy transition. And he says, there was not a single technician in there, right? There, there, was, there was not a single member of, of, uh, of you know, those companies that make high voltage lines, right? So all the, 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 the companies, the individuals 
that have to put the bits and pieces into place to make it possible, they were not invited. There were philosophers were there, human rights activists were there, right? Green NGOs were there, but nobody who actually works in the energy business was there. And this is, uh, to, to be very clear, right? Very often uh, I get the question, say, ah, well, so is this a, a, a kind of, you know, a broader plan by the WF or is it Klaus Schwab or thing? <laughs> I don't think it is. I, I, I really don't think it is. I think it, it's a, Particularly those who have grew, grown up in, in urban settings have been marinated in the modern educational system, the modern university system. They honestly believe this. So I don't think there is a there is a I mean, there are interest groups and everything, but but I don't think it's like that, that there is a cabal of people that know what they're doing is, is problematic, but they do it anyways. I think it's people that honestly believe in what they're doing and, and, and that makes them, in my opinion, that makes them so dangerous. Uh, if it would only be something that's calculated, uh, you could change course. But if it's almost a, a religious kind of fervor mm. that, that drives your actions, it's, I think it's much, much harder to get uh, to, to change your position. Yeah, I think it's probably both. But I, I it varies. The, like It depends what day it is, depends on, on which one I think is the, the stronger mm. force, you know? Yes, yes. Um, it's probably both human stupidity <laughs> combined with some powerful people trying to take advantage of it and that that could probably describe most of the history of humanity so <laughs> yeah no that's true yeah no you're right <laughs> but i mean think think about it uh when when i think you know when 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 netflix is i haven't seen the movie so you know, when netflix kind of produces i think it was don't look up so you know this movie with uh, mm. uh i think leonardo dicaprio and uh i forgot the girl from the hunger games um jennifer, jennifer lawrence, lawrence. Yeah. yeah right so so all you know, kind of, the, and, and I don't think that Klaus Schwab has to call Netflix and say, "Hey guys, <laughs> it would be great if you would make a movie." That, you know, like he doesn't have to, uh, because they they gonna make it anyway. But they, these these are uh, um, that kind of information is kind of it 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 it's trickled into the entire cultural political uh, atmosphere, and and that you don't need it. It's it works on its own. You really don't need necessarily somebody to uh, to 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 do it. Mm. So I uh, must have been at the start of this year, or maybe even last year. I'll need to look this up. Anyway, I had this guy on the show called Dr. Randy Thornhill, um, and he proposed this theory about, well, I mean, he, he's got a lot of evidence to back it up, and it's um, essentially that the more infectious diseases exist in a country, the further to, to the right and uh, more authoritarian their political system tends to be or that their their general sort of average political thought tends to be um i'm gonna need to look up the name of the theory because right now it's really really escaping my mind um one second randy thornhill is the guy parasite stress that's it parasite stress Okay. Okay. Very interesting. So it's it's fascinating, man. Like, um, you can either people can listen to either my episode with him, or they can go and listen to the one he did with uh Dr. Jordan Peterson on his podcast, um, which uh, probably goes into it better than than I was capable of getting him to explain. But yeah, basically, he thinks that that as as the, the as the prevalence of infectious disease increases in a country, you get the the country is on average further to the right and more authoritarian. And I had a conversation with him about whether he thought that COVID was going to do this to the world, whether he, uh, whether he thought that it was a possibility that 
in response to this pandemic that the world that the average political sort of leaning of people would go further to the right and more authoritarian and i kind of think he might be right because i think that's what we're seeing right and i just sort of, I, I wanted to get i wanted to get your take on on how the world is is reacting and sort of what what has changed um with coming out of the pandemic um and you know the all of the the, the climate discussions that are happening right now and it, it feels like we're in a very volatile period of 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 human history and i was sort of wondering where you think where you think we have been redirected as a result of the past couple of years yeah, I mean, this is, this is a great topic. I, I would agree. I mean, I, I'm not yet familiar, but I definitely will listen to a podcast and familiarize myself with it, with uh, uh, Dr. Tornell's work. I would argue that 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 it's it's uh, it's ha- half right in the sense of, of I would fully agree with the authoritarian part. Uh, I would only disagree. I don't think that authoritarianism is necessarily, uh, you know, limited to, to the right wing. Oh, this is no, a, I don't mean that at all. I mean that, like, on the on the compass, like, the, the thing, people are going, you know, on the, the four-point compass, the, like, yeah. authoritarian, um, libertarian, left, right. I think it's it's shifting people to the right and further up on that compass. I think the up, I agree, right? With the, Oh, yeah. No, I think there is something to it. But it's 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 odd. Uh, I mean, if, if you look at like, Germany voted... Um, uh, uh, you know, it's it's a left wing coalition into into government. Uh, if current polls could be believed, I mean, it looks like if Great Britain would you know go to the polls tomorrow, that that Labour would you know would would you know, the Conservatives would be a, a shadow of themselves. Mm. Whatever whatever's going to be going to be left at them. Um, uh, the the US. I, mean, I would you know, I wouldn't consider that party to be either left or libertarian. I would say that I do they're... agree. Yes, no, I do agree. <laughs> I do, I do, I do, I do agree. Uh, I, I was hoping you wouldn't trip me up on that. <laughs> you're absolutely right. Uh, but we also right we had the midterms in the United States, and I, I mean they didn't really represent a, a, a shift uh, to to the um, uh, to the right or necessarily to the to the to the more authoritarian. Uh, it's um, I think it's it's hard to. It, I think it's it's somewhat nation specific, it, and and the reason the reason why I'm saying this, I know that this seems like I'm dodging the bullet, but let let me add on very quickly what I mean by this. I'm sometimes reminded on the on the the global financial crisis in 2008, right, as it broke out, and and I found it quite intriguing because you saw the European reaction or the kind of the movements that that popped up most forcefully in Europe were kind of you know the state needs to do more. Okay, we need more government intervention. We need more government uh, uh, control and interference. But the movement that popped up in the United States was, again, for better or worse, but that's we can have this discussion as well, of course. But there was the Tea Party movement, which was more or less a movement that said, you know, get the government out of my business, right? We we want we want less government. So I think it's it's a it's a, a, a tricky. Uh, it it kind of I think we it's very hard to say that that the, that the reaction is going to be the same in every country. Mm-hmm. I mean the and and you saw this also during 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 COVID, right? I mean you have. Uh, very, you have states with with like very strong governments like Sweden or general the Scandinavians, but they are not authoritarian. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think then you have, I would argue, countries like I mean they're also, but in, compared to this to the Swiss, but can, Germany is 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 in many ways it's a kind of soft authoritarianism, but in many ways it's more authoritarianism, even though uh, they they are kind of the the, you know, the taxes are slightly slightly lower. Let's put it let's put it this way. So, so this is a, 
this is a tricky thing, but I I have to admit that, and this is something I'm I'm this is why I think I think this is such a great topic and such a great question. I mean, I was surprised by degree to which populations accepted a, a very strong form of authoritarianism by their governments. And I think that's what a theory seems to be right. So if the reason is a virus, right? if the reason is a, a health issue, people are willing to, to put up with a lot. And, and I was not so bad, I guess, in Austria, but I mean, maybe a little bit of it was exaggerated. I was, well, I was, I was there for the second second. So you're right. You know what? Yeah, you're right, actually. Yeah, you're right. I, 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 see, see, I do the same thing. So, so I mean, I say, oh, it wasn't that bad. But, but, in, in, you know, like, but also in Australia, right? In that, yeah, in, it didn't get quite that bad, yeah. Yeah, or in France, you know, where, where you couldn't walk around. I mean, this is, these things are massive infringements on, on, Even on, curfews on individual liberty. in peacetime. Oh, yeah. You know, like, <laughs> in peacetime. I think seems the, the, uh, the Canadian commentator, who he's now, I was always a huge fan of him. He was, he's my kind of, he's my great idol when it comes to writing. I always wish that I could write like him, but I'm, I'm you know, far from, from being capable of anything like that. Um, who's a lot on GB News these days is Mark Stein. Mm. Uh, and, and he had this line during the, 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 the pandemic. He said, you know, that, that in, in, in France, uh, even under four years of German occupation, the, the pubs and bistros, had open until midnight, uh, and you know in Britain the pubs had open, uh, you know during the Blitz during you know the, the worst uh, times of of World War Two, uh, and, and and not even that was possible during during COVID. However, it it, it I think it dovetails nicely with the question you had before, right? The Steelman argument. As long as people had the expectation that this is going to be, it was longer than expected, but as long as they still had the idea that this is probably uh, only temporarily, uh, I think that that they were willing to put up with it. And what I find, I can only speak about Austria, I don't know how it's in Britain. What I find encouraging is, I mean, we still have the mayor of Vienna going out and saying the pandemic is not over. And I think Anthony <laughs> Fauci recently said, we're still in the middle of the pandemic. Right? But you see, people just basically say, you know, I'm not going to do it on camera, but they pretty much flick them off and, mm -hmm. you know, and say, no, go back at yourself. Nobody cares anymore about this. And uh, so that gives me some some sense that I mean, what worries me, just even I'm in this one sentence, what does one is if a worse pandemic should break out, right? Mm. With, with with a virus who that that is a uh, uh, and, and again every every person lost their life due to this virus is tragic. So I, I don't belittle this. But that that is 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 as let's say as severe as we feared that COVID would be. Mm -hmm. Uh that that you know that there is there's people kind of know been there, done that. So, so could you do the same measures with the, the same level of compliance, whether it was high or low? I think people would not go along with it. So, yeah. so governments have squandered in recent years on multiple issues, not just COVID. I think they have squandered a lot of social capital and public trust. And what's maddening about this is, and what apparently politicians do not understand, you cannot compartmentalize. In, in the sense, you cannot tell the people, Oh, oh, yeah, we, we abused your trust in the, the realm of healthcare, but trust us on climate, right? Hmm. Oh, oh, we abused your trust in the realm of migration. We uh, abused or, or, or we didn't satisfy our work satisfactorily in the realm of politics, but trust us in, in the area of crime. This is not how this works. People either trust their government or they don't. And this was, in the end, I believe, the recipe of Sweden and, and, and the Nordic countries. If people genuinely say, we know that government is not going to get everything right, 
but they will at least try to be transparent and have our best interest at, at heart. People can forgive mistakes and they stay on board. And this I have to admit, whatever, when again, the, the Swedish way does, could have gone awfully wrong. Mm -hmm. But the Swedish government, kind of with, with, with uh, what was the name, Angus Tegnell, the, the, the lead virologist, they went out and said, this is our strategy. We believe this is the best way forward. We cannot make a promise because uh, we can only tell you that we do not know if it's going to work, but it's our best shot. That was completely different from as it was in Austria, in the United States, in Germany, in France, where politicians said, we know what to do. We have the solution. We know precisely that's completely. So this, the, the, the yeah, they had the solution, all the pandemic plans that they ignored. No. Exactly. And this is, and this is, and this is, and this goes back to I think with the Thornton argument where he's right. It's always the we have this magic button we could push to solve all the problems, but in order to push the button, we just need a little bit more power, right? And it's never enough, right? It's never done enough. They just need a little bit more and a little bit more. And then before you know it, right? It's, again, I, I, no country in Europe is on the brink of a dictatorship, but the tendency is towards a more authoritarian uh, uh, kind of, 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 of politics and a more authoritarian kind of, 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 of public discourse. I think that is undeniable. Mm. Uh, and it's important to kind of counter this uh, when it's still small than before it becomes uncontrollable. So, so the, I don't, the argument that many say, well, it's not as bad as you know, China, for example, that's a very weak argument. And it's, it's, it's like, it's, it's like you know, imagine you break your leg and I say, what are you whining about? At least it's not a heart attack. And that's not going to help you, right? So, so this is. So, so I think there is a there, there, there's a lot we still have to work through with this. Uh, I cannot speak to 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 how especially the younger generation has been affected by this. Uh, I mean, in yeah, Austria, I don't think I don't think we're going to know for twenty years how bad. I it think is. so too. I think so too. But I mean, we pretty much we, we stole for some for some people in certain ages. I mean, we stole the two or two of the most important years in their development in, in their young lives from them. And, and in, in hindsight, a, a lot of, a lot of the things that happen are unforgivable. And uh, it would have been nice for, for governments, for politicians to come forward and say, we made huge mistakes, you know, something we probably can never make up, but at least we, we admit the mistakes, but they still like, again, if you ask them, no, they did it. It's it like, Angela, if you ask Angela Merkel about Russia, right? She knew it all. Like she recently gave an interview where she said, oh, for her, it was always clear that, that Putin is a, is a bad guy. And, and this is the maddening thing about politicians. No, no matter how much they fail, they always tell you, oh, I knew all of this way before. And it was always clear to me. Mm. And it's, uh, it's, it's frustrating. It just feels like if you had that information, maybe you wouldn't shut down your nuclear power plants completely. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> and, and, and the thing is, people would be up, like, I, and either, they are so, either they surround themselves with the wrong people. If you come forward and say, a mistake was made. Uh, uh, I have changed my belief. For example, right? If Robert Habeck comes forward and say uh, that the, the, the green German Minister of the Economy and the Environment, if he comes forward and says my position on nuclear power was wrong, uh, I think we need to 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 correct course. I bet everything I have that many Germans would say it takes guts to do that. Right? Right? Kind of to go out in public to say we made a mistake, but my primary goal or primary is to you know provide energy security for the German people. And that's more important than my own ideological goals. I think even people who don't sympathize with the Greens would say, you know what, th this is leadership. This is what I expect from 
uh, from from a person in power, but they can't do it, right? The, the, the politics at the moment they can never admit a mistake. I I, I remain I find it fascinating to observe, right? They just can't. Mm-hmm. Whatever it is, it's 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 never it's never their fault, right? It's it's you you have Christine Lagarde, right, the head of the ECB, saying two weeks ago in an interview. Well, inflation came out of the blue. Nobody saw it coming. I want to punch them in the face when they say stuff like that. It's like, fuck you. Like me with no economics degree remembers my 15-year-old history lesson by my republic. Don't print loads of money without anything to spend it on. Don't. Just don't do it. It's going to end badly. And these these pricks that are getting paid millions can stand there with a straight face. Fucking say it. It's it's exactly it's amazing. Right? It's it's they, they can't they can't have, and the energy transition transition will be the same thing. In ten years, when we finally and the course correction is gonna come, it, it's gonna come one way or another, right? They gonna they gonna stand there and say, oh, "We always knew this." And it was always clear to us that uh, that, that that it's gonna and, and and again, you I we will it's like we're still gonna 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 be there and and you know have to deal with it. And then this is the funny part, and then they will wonder again when every poll that comes out. You know, and every survey they do says that the least trusted people are, you know, it's, it's usually it's politicians and the media. And they're going to say, well, what can we do to increase their trust? Why don't they trust us anymore? It's it's not a mystery. It, it really is not such a mystery. Well, that feels like a lovely place on which to end things, uh, Ralph. It's been, uh, yeah, an absolute blast having you on the show. Uh, thanks so much for, for taking the time. Uh, well, thank you for having me. This was so much fun. Yeah, no problem, man. Um, is there anything you would like to point people towards of your work um, for them to check out? Oh, yeah, absolutely. If anybody should be, you know, I'd be humbled if anybody should be interested. Uh, uh, if you just uh, Google either, you know, my name, Ralph Schellhammer, um, it takes you directly. Kind of the first hit is is my my homepage uh and uh, now google even recognizes me as an author so you know something else to cross uh cross off my uh my bucket list and uh i mean generally as i write i mean to and for, i mean i'm so honored and so happy that i had the opportunity to be on on your podcast um like everything right i mean we we, we i'm sure that we are also wrong on 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 many issues so so this Probably. is always my 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 recommendation to you know to, to remain to remain humble and also be aware of of uh uh okay that maybe as a, as a general last point this is this, is, this is maybe if, if you allow me one broader point i think this is also a little bit the problem we have undermined so many traditional sources of meaning in 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 life right that that then these broad politi- or that politics generally has become a replacement for this and i think this is a very very dangerous uh development because once politics becomes the center of your life or political positions, whether it's on climate, whether it's on abortion, whether it's on, I don't really don't. And I don't even care which which of the possibilities is, right? Whether it's the right wing or the left wing position. But if this becomes such a an entrenched part of your identity, right? It's going to be very hard to come to solutions because it's no longer a debate about a technical problem to be solved. It's a, it's a, It becomes a discussion about who you are. And that makes it so much more difficult. And again, there's my recommendation uh, always, you know, to to kind of find yourself in, you know, in in your friendships with people around you, in uh, in family, in uh, in in actual people around you, and not, you know, who posted something about you on Twitter or, or left a mean uh, Facebook comment. Uh, <laughs> these things are. I mean, I think I'm in the lucky position 
most of my friends and almost all of my family uh, are inactive on social media. My parents to this day don't even know what Twitter is. <laughs> uh, so this is this this is always, I think, for me, a very a very comforting uh, comforting thing. Where I say, why should I care if I, you know, John Smith X Y two says Shalhammer, you're an idiot. And you know, then I sit at home and say, oh my god, there is some guy whose name I don't know and whose picture is a little egg, and he thinks I'm an idiot. What can I do to convince him of my of my great? No, right. So so, so and, and the same with politics, as I said. If tomorrow, for example, uh, we we have a breakthrough in battery storage and and uh, and and we can load these batteries with wind and solar and it gets us through the winter, I'm the first one, you know, to break ground for uh, a solar panel and a wind turbine in my in my parents' garden. So I can because my soul is not tied to nuclear, my soul is not tied to fossil fuels. Uh, but uh, I I just think that. That I don't want people to be poor, right? I don't want people to suffer. It's a um, we we tend to underestimate that, that that if life becomes more expensive, it's not just about the the banana and the pineapple I mentioned. It's also about MRIs. It's also about dialysis. Uh, it's it's also about you know cancer treatments. And and I want as many people as possible to have access to this. And it's not possible without cheap and reliable energy. And unless we find a replacement, I think we have to fight. To keep it reliable, to enable as many people a dignified uh, and prosperous life as possible. Well, that is a beautiful message to finish on, um, Ralph. Uh, yeah, thanks very much, man. It's been it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Josh. Thank you so much. Hey, everyone. Thanks for making it right the way to the end of the podcast. I love that you tuned in this long. Do me a favor, hit subscribe because eighty percent of you bastards are not subscribing, but you're watching my videos. See you next time.